Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. And I'm her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi and I want to welcome you to Open to Hope Conversations, the podcast. We believe that the greatest gift you can give yourself after a loss is hope, using this moment to connect with others who have not only survived, but thrived. So let's get started. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, it's so interesting to see what people do in the field of grief and loss and how they come into it in such beautiful ways. And we have an example today of a person who has come in and given a voice to grief, which we love, and building empathy, which empathy is so important in this world. So would you like to introduce our guest today? Sure. Our guest today is Lindsay Whistle-Fenton, and she is a senior producer for WPSU, the PBS NPR affiliate station in central Pennsylvania. She is an Emmy award-winning storyteller, and she is the producer and director of Speaking Grief, an initiative aimed at creating a more grief-aware society. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's, yeah, really happy to have you on. What, what made you decide to broach this subject of grief and loss and it's one that many many people particularly in the media try to avoid and you know Heidi and I started our whole enterprise of Open to Hope because there was so lacking in giving a voice to grief and recovery. That's actually one of the things I love about working for public media is I think we tend to gravitate towards things that aren't being talked about or we look for things that haven't been uh, getting as much attention and think about where we can add value and so speaking grief is actually kind of a long uh, winding conversation or winding journey. Uh, a former colleague of mine who's since retired named Patty Satalia had wanted to do programming around grieving the loss of a child. And at some point I uh, had raised my hand and said, I, I love working on things like this where we get to kind of look at these shared human experiences. And um, she's since retired, but uh, I ended up kind of taking the lead on the project and driving it forward over, I think it's been about four or five years since the idea first came up and just spent some time researching grief and, and looking into what's been done and more importantly, what hasn't been done. And we just came to a conclusion that this is something that really needs a lot more attention and that we are uniquely positioned as a public media station um, to do. And so one thing I do like to be transparent about is I actually came to this project as someone somewhat of an outsider. I've, I've had loss and grief in my life, but people sort of assume that this was motivated um, because I get so passionate about it that it was motivated by a personal experience with loss. And it really was more motivated by speaking to a lot of other people about their experiences and just seeing how much need there is um, and how much uh, devastation there is around the isolation that comes with grief when there doesn't have to be and thinking that we could do something to change that. You know, um, however, I must say this, I was asking you before the show, what was your experience? And, and we've all had losses. You lost your grandparents and then you lost a cousin to a drug overdose. Is that it? Yes. So um, Tyler, he was 23. Um, it's been, we just uh, passed his five year anniversary in July. Um, none of us knew that he suffered from the disease of addiction. Um, so that was very unexpected um, for our whole family. I mean, obviously, I, I believe his parents knew 
that he was struggling. Um, but, you know, one of the stories where he had a really bright future, he had just finished an MBA program in France and had a, an internship lined up in Paris and was just home for the summer. And, um, you know, all that promise was just gone from the earth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not surprising that you've had a loss, even though you say that you approach this topic in a different way. You could hear it. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could hear what's going on. I think, you know, the loss of your grandparents and then the loss of your cousin. We all have these experiences. And I think if they're processed, we can hear each other. But if they don't process them, you avoid them. There's, there's an avoidance uh, factor from this. So obviously your family is one that processed the, your grandparents' death. I assume your parents were able to deal with it and deal with life. How did they yeah. do it? Um, well, and one was very recent. So my dad's mother died uh, a little over four years ago and um, they were pretty good. That was one of those lost experiences that I think is sort of like the ideal where she, we had a few, you know, little notice where pretty much the whole family was able to come together and be with her. Um, and I still remember she's, uh, she's from England and I still remember writing to her last surviving sibling and just um, assuring him that it was just such a beautiful send off. There was this beautiful sunset. That's what I remember is just the light filled the room. And I mean, it was awful, but it was such a beautiful moment of just being surrounded by um, her family. And she'd been, I think, ready to go for a while. My, um, my grandfather's been gone for a long time and she'd been um, deteriorating health wise. So I think my, especially my dad took a lot of comfort um, in his faith and in knowing that um, she was going to be whole and restored. And um, with my mom's mom, that happened in February and it was very different where she um, was actually alone when she died. And that, you know, causes a different layer of pain, I think. Um, but so that's still- This February? This February, so it was right. Um, and I know one of the things my mom has found taken some comfort in is that um, my grandmother had always been very independent. And then I think a couple months before she died, she had finally moved into assistant living, assisted living. And they didn't love the place where she ended up. And I think we're trying to move her. And my mom keeps saying, wow, if this had happened, if COVID had happened and grandma was still there and we weren't able to see her or have contact and like not feeling good about um, necessarily the place she was in, how awful that would have been. So uh, I think she's found her her comfort that way but we uh we haven't had a memorial yet so that's still um coming because we were trying to get all of the grandchildren together we were trying to pick a date that was far enough in advance that the whole family could come together she didn't want anything real big but she did want like a brunch for the grandchildren so that's still um to be determined at this date so like many other people things have been held off mm -hmm. well tell me what would you see, uh, I know you're working to have a grief aware society, what would you see that that would look like? I mean, you now one of the things I went to your site and you have these beautiful interviews with people who have had grief and loss. When I say beautiful, I, I probably should not, compelling. And they're very candid, very clear. What do you think that that does for people to hear those stories and, and how do you plan on projecting them out to people? So we have uh, multiple platforms for this project. We have the documentary that actually was just released um, yesterday online um, on National Grief Awareness Day. So people can now watch the full film at speakinggrief.org. And then we have a whole web library of these profiles of families, but also 
I think we counted, it's more than 600 videos between those profiles and then snippets of interviews from experts, uh, uh, grief professionals, and then the families that are grieving, um, all integrated into kind of our twofold mission, which for me, this is what grief awareness looks like for grieving people to feel validated. And, and I think because it's really to help us understand what the reality of what grief is, because there's so much misconception in our culture that one, I think we internalize that and we measure our own grief experiences against this, um, this sort of false understanding of, well, you know, we'll be going through something for a finite amount of time and then we complete these steps and we're fine. Um, and, and letting people know that their experience um, is normal and is healthy and it's, it's what we do as humans when we're responding to loss or change and removing the shame around that and moving away from the idea that it's uh, somehow bad or problematic. And then from the support side, this is where, when I talked about adding value as a public media station, where we really felt there was a gap that we could fill because there's a lot of great resources that already exist for people who are grieving. But for the people who are in contact with someone who's grieving, whether that's your, um, another person in your family, a friend, a coworker, the secondary loss that comes from our discomfort, I think, and from that ignorance and that fear, because we're always afraid of things we don't understand, we pull away. All of that, that idea of things being so other and so foreign, it can be really scary when you're coming into that grief space. And so I think a lot of the times when we pull back, it's not because we don't care. I think we care so much. We're so afraid of adding to that pain, but we are also very uncomfortable with it. And so to your question about what a grief-aware society looks like, I believe it's one and that we are able to hear pain and we're able to sit with pain and not and move past our sort of cultural narrative about fixing it and 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 being back to being happy or being productive um, and acknowledging that the whole spectrum of human experience is worth sitting with and worth us knowing um, and that we shouldn't be shutting things in the corner just because they make us uncomfortable and then giving people and having people be comfortable in that space so i think it's getting people past this idea that they have to know exactly what to say or to do and just understanding that presence is so much more important and that we need to stop thinking our job is to fix somebody but it's really just to companion them to be with them and mm -hmm. so they're not alone and I think that's the hardest. I teach grief and loss classes at Columbia University. And I think the hardest thing for my students is exactly what you just said. Like we can't fix it because at the end of the day, people want that person back in the room that died. That's what they want. We can't give them that. And, and sitting with someone and, and as a companion and taking the grief journey with them is difficult. It sounds easy, but it's not. So teaching people how to do that. Um, I was wondering, with all these interviews you did, was there anything that surprised you that you learned in hearing everybody's stories? I think the most surprising thing is how willing and, and happy, I guess, people were to share their stories. Because I think, I think, early on in this, uh, a, a big core of my research was having phone interviews with people. Um, and I talked to just dozens of people about their experiences on the phone. Um, and especially early on, like, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a filmmaker. So coming to this and kind of, you know, I educated myself as much as I could, but a lot of it was learning as I went. 
and people would become emotional. And so I would instantly apologize and say, I'm so sorry, I'm stirring all this up for you and, and falling into that trap of thinking that expressions of pain were, um, were something that we need to apologize for. And they would kind of stop me and say, no, I'm actually really grateful because nobody ever gives me this chance. Nobody asks me directly about my grief or my loss. And, you know, this is a gift for me to be able to, to speak openly about it in a space without judgment. And so that was really the core of going back to that group aware society, I think broadening that so that more people have that opportunity. Um, and I think also just reinforcing the idea of the, the power of narrative and of being given the chance to tell our story. People have shared that that is so, has been so cathartic of them to be part of this project. And a lot of other people who've since seen the film or interacted with the website have reached out to not only share feedback about what we created, but then to tell us a little piece of their story. So I think that just drives home the need we all have to be heard mm -hmm. and validated. Right, absolutely. In telling our story, we begin to heal. Absolutely. Like you said, it's, it's really powerful. And as you pointed out, and it's often, the power, it's often minimized. People don't often realize that letting, allowing, giving people the space to tell their story is very, very powerful. And even, um, I, I like to bring that up for supporting people too, mm -hmm. is that because I think we're so action oriented um, and we do try to coach people to do those tangible things, to mow the lawn, to drop off some groceries, those are all wonderful. Um, but we're trying to give people a whole kind of deck of things they can choose from as, as something to offer help. And, and the thing I always joke about is like, I'm a terrible cook, so I'm not gonna be the person who offers to bring you a meal. I mean, you, I could bring you takeout, but, um, but I'm fairly comfortable sitting and holding that space. So it took me a while to realize, wow, just offering to sit and listen is a real thing. Like that's a real action. And I think because it feels passive, we think, oh, that's not enough. But often that's, I think, the greatest thing. And, and I've had the same thing done for me. I've had, especially you know, more recently with my grandmother, when I'm a little bit more conscious of what my experience is and how things feel to me in the space of grief, um, having had a few people who were willing to just sit there and let me cry or let me be angry or let me be confused and not sure what I'm feeling, uh, what a gift that is. Mm -hmm. So what are your future plans with the program and tell people how they can find you and all that. So uh, speakinggrief.org is the website. Again, the full film is there, but I really encourage people to spend some time on the site, not just watch the film, but we have uh, some brilliant minds that have gone into advising this project and a, and a brilliant instructional designer who's made pages of content for, excuse me, for understanding grief and supporting grief. We also have all those other web profiles. I also encourage people to follow us on social media at WPSU Grief because we're really uh, using those platforms as a place to have these sort of micro lessons about grief, um, not just as something that we're promoting the project, but to really extend learning. And then we have some, we had a bunch of events planned that obviously got postponed and I think are moving virtual. So there'll be some virtual events coming up, I believe in November around uh, Children's Grief Awareness Month. And then longer term in the project, um, I should say I'm also continuing to do although not officially part of the project, WPSU has a radio program called Take Note that airs uh, every Friday. And our news director has allowed me to dedicate one episode per month on a grief-related topic. So that's happening. And our team is actually actively brainstorming what our next phase will look like. We've all become kind of grief advocates and are really excited to continue this work. And so 
we're honing in on what that might be, but we're thinking about things like uh, resources on grief-aware schools or grief-aware workplaces and on things like continuing to build out that web library with those stories of grief. But so the project's not going away. It's just, um, it's, it's in a transitional phase, I think, where we're like, what more can we do? Where can we go next? And I'll say too, our, uh, our team um, was just awarded through sort of an internal competition we do every year for new ideas. We're going to be developing a grief support app. Um, so we're going to, yeah, we're really excited. It's something we all, we've all said we need in our lives and um, that's usually a great place to start. So we're, uh, our team is just beginning to develop that, but it'll basically send um, nudges to people to check in with their person um, around specific dates that they entered or just randomly every two weeks, every month, however often they want to set it and we'll, we'll coach them with some things they could do or say. So that'll be um, hopefully out in the next year. Great. Well, it's exciting hearing all the things you're doing. Of course, Heidi and I are thrilled to have you in this space because uh, people really need to hear the voice of grief and recovery. And uh, just thank you so much for opening uh, some more of the light of this to the world. Well, thank you for the work you do. Thanks, Lindsay. And thank you for bringing hope to so many out there. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening and tuning in and joining us today. And Heidi and I always want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own and God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation, where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.